Spoiler alert. If you do not want this film ruined, do not proceed. There's spoilers galore. You have been warned. Welcome to Talk Classic to Me, the classic film podcast and movie club where I, Sarah Greenfield, your host and classic film enthusiast, bring in my entertaining friends to talk about classic movies or any other old-fashioned form of media that strikes my fancy. On today's show, we are talking about the film The Invisible Man from 1933 with my brilliant guest, Nick Lang. All right, Nick, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thank you for having me. It's great to be back. A returning guest. Uh, so yeah, we watched The Invisible Man from 1933. This was actually Nick's suggestion. I had never seen this movie before. Mm-hmm. I was so pleasantly surprised. What a delight. Oh my goodness. This is a good one, right? It was really enjoyable. It yeah. really blended some comedic elements with mm-hmm. a little bit of fear. But I mean, since it's nowadays, it wasn't really scary yeah. at all. No, no, no. It's, it's, it's not scary. It's just funny. And fun and cool to see all the effects and know that they were special in the day. Yes, yeah. yes. At the time, no one had seen anything like it. Yeah, I like this one a lot. For those of you that are listening, this is uh, the Invisible Man that's like the classic universal horror. Yes. Yeah, so so this is 1933, early, early days. Yeah, and like the Universal Monsters, you know, they're like the classics. And this one is kind of like not first tier, like Invisible Man isn't like Dracula or, or you Frankenstein. Know, Frankenstein or Wolfman. But I love this movie in particular. I think it it's such a strong outing, individual outing. And why I, I suggested this one, Sarah, <laughs> is that the first time I saw Bride of Frankenstein is when you showed me Bride of Frankenstein. That was the first time I saw it, too. We watched it together. And you had talked about watching, like, Frankenstein or watching Bride of Frankenstein again. But you were like, but I've already seen those. Yeah. And then Invisible Man is the other universal monster movie directed by james whale who's the same director as the frankenstein movies so i said oh well let's watch that one and it's it's not too scary as you know i have a harder time with scary movies i've gotten better as i get older but yes this is a if someone does not have a a very high tolerance for scary movies the the universal monster movies are great because you get the spookiness, the Halloween feeling, but you don't have to be absolutely terrified or awake in your bed in the middle of the night worried someone's going to break into your house and like murder you. Um, you're not really afraid of that when you watch this. <laughs> uh, I will do a quick plot summary for the people at home if you're just listening to this and haven't watched it or if you just like to hear plot summaries, because why not? Uh, so The Invisible Man, based on the H.G. Wells novel and apparently does not have a lot in common with the H.G. Wells novel. I've never read it. I wouldn't know. But it's about this man who we see on a snowy night in a village town, all bundled up. Why is he bundled up? Is it because it's cold? We don't know. Uh, So he goes to this pub. He asks not to be disturbed. And he's clearly working on something scientific. And one day, his very hilarious landlady comes up to bring him food and sees something is weird about him. Although she doesn't really see it. We see it as the audience. We realize, oh my gosh, he's invisible under his bandages. And he's a mad scientist at this point who has invented this experiment to become invisible, realizes after he becomes invisible that he's super power hungry and has all these impulses to do insanely terrible things. Um, He's engaged to his... Is there, are they engaged? Yeah, yeah they're yeah. engaged. I, it's kind of, it's kind of vague. It's vague. He's engaged to his bosses. His, his boss is also a scientist. 
He's engaged to his boss's daughter, and the whole reason he wanted to make this experiment was to earn money, but again, the scientist informs us once he realizes what's going on, oh no, this ingredient that this man has taken turns you mad, and he's not himself anymore. And so the Invisible Man decides, hey, I don't want an antidote, I'm gonna go do terrible things, and then he does a bunch of terrible things, and then... He's murdered. Um, and by murdered, I mean killed, because he murdered people. Yeah, he's a murderer. He's a murderer. Yeah. Um, and what I think is really funny now is I read this whole thing about how it was based on the H.G. Wells novel, but also there was another novel written in 1931 that brought in more sympathetic elements to the character. And it talked about how it went even further in the film. And I was like, are you kidding? He was not sympathetic at all. He was a dick <laughs> from the beginning. He was rude to everybody yeah. around him. Um, yes. blamed everybody for things that were 100% his own fault. And I thought that was really funny where I was like, that was a more sympathetic character. I love this character because he's so evil and he's, and he's insane. He's the mad scientist. And also he keeps on doing things that you go like, you could have not done that and totally gotten away with whatever you're doing. At one point, a, a police officer that's chasing him that's like investigating this invisible man because the police are like, there's no such thing as an invisible man. Yeah. And the police that's supposed to be following up on this case doesn't believe in it. But then he attacks that police officer in front of everybody. In a way that would have been so difficult too because I was like, you, had, you would have had to be standing or sitting on the table directly in front of him. So you would have to be like crouched down naked, by the way, because to be invisible, he has to be completely naked. And then um, he throws ink in that cop's face. And then the woman, Una O'Connor, stands on the table immediately after. So I'm like, where'd he go so fast? How'd he get on that table? There just were certain things where I was like, how? How did you do that, Mr. Naked Man? He's scrambling all around and he's silent when he does it. He scrambles around so silently. There were so many funny things in this movie too. I saw that um, Preston Sturges was an uncredited writer on it and that makes so much sense to me because there were so many slapstick moments like when uh, the Invisible Man first realizes that he can pull pranks on people. By the way, this yeah. is how it goes. When he realizes he has power, his first thoughts are like, I can rape someone. I can murder someone. I can rob. Like, those are the first three things out of his mouth. And I was like, whoa, that seems yeah. pretty drastic. But the first three things he does are not those things. The first three things he does are like, go into the village, knock off an old man's hat and say a stupid one-liner at him. Like, he knocks off a grandpa's hat and it's like, how do you do, grandpa? And I'm like, oh, Jesus, the puns. He's Yeah, and he's like picking up a kid's bike and carrying it around. Just, how do you like that? And then I think my favorite one was he threw a broom at someone and said something like, here's a comb, brush your hair and I was like oh no <laughs> oh wow um so yes his first impulse is murder and rape but what he actually does at first is just yeah he it really escalates really fast because at first he's going like oh I'll take a bike I'll do this but then he actually he robs a bank but he goes out and starts throwing the money to the people because he doesn't care about having money. No. He's invisible. He doesn't care. But then he derails a train and kills a hundred people. I think they said 120 people, right? Something like yeah, that. It's, it's insane. You go, this man is a mass. 
mass murderer. He he kills people unmasked. He's a mass murderer, but his girlfriend is still all about it. Which brings us to another point. If it took you five years to make this potion, and you were up all night for five years, how the fuck do you have time to have a girlfriend? This is what I did not understand. It doesn't make sense. I don't know. This was a different time. This was like a time when, you know, you would you would talk to someone once and then say, we'll be wed one day. And then... <laughs> 10 years ago by you see him again and say there you are we are led i'll wait for you i'll write you letters it's just a time you know before i can't imagine what it was like before like telephones and things like that mm -hmm. well now no one has seen anybody but even when it wasn't COVID times i think about how few people i see and I go like, yeah, maybe back before phones, that's how it was. You met someone once and you said, I'll wait for you. Because you're not going to meet anybody anyway. Being an avid reader of Jane Austen, I can tell you exactly how it was. It's the letters, man. It's all about those letters. That's it. They're the old-timey text messages. Yeah. So I feel like that's all it is. You just got to write real good letters. That's how you win their hearts. Did they talk in this movie about them writing letters at they all? They didn't. I feel like. But I just felt like um, she heard about what he did in the newspaper. She heard all those things, the fiance, and she was just like, it's fine. I still love you. And I thought, mm, I don't know. I don't know how I would feel about that. I, I mean, maybe she understood that he had gone mad. Yeah. It's kind of more like, you need help, Jack. You need help. Because his name is Jack Griffin, right? Yeah, good name. Great name. So, yeah, I think it's less like she's, oh, I'm fine with it. And it's more like, oh, no, the person that I love is ill. They've taken a drug that has warped their mind can I in some way stop them from killing people because I don't want people to die? And I also am like, any way to help this person? Because you know it's like not 100% his fault because he did take a drug that made him go crazy, I guess. He didn't know it was going to make him crazy. Which I also wrote down, this movie just provides so many explanations after the fact because you raise all these questions as you're watching and then they'll pepper it in later. Like immediately you're like, wait, yeah. if he's invisible, how is he eating and where does the food go? And so later on they're like, this has nothing to do with anything that will happen later, but we know you're curious. If he eats, he must wait for an hour to do anything because you can see the food while it digests. And I went, thank you. Yeah. Um, they would pepper yeah. in little things like that to keep you understanding as the film went on. And one of the things I wrote down was like, wait, if you're a good scientist, shouldn't you know what this thing Thing does and so then the smart the like I was gonna say the papa scientist <laughs> the yeah, head papa. Si papa scientist <laughs> the head scientist he says not a lot of people know about this because it's in a German book and I happened to fall upon it one day only English doctors think it does this other thing it takes away the color of you so they would explain things along the way because people like me would have been like wait a minute wouldn't you know that? <laughs> Hold on. It's it's nice that they thought about that. Yeah. I, I read somewhere once, though, it was somebody talking about the invisible man or just an invisible person in, in general. And they said, if you were actually invisible, you would be blind because you can only see because light goes into your eye and hits your, your retina or whatever sensor is back there. And if you were invisible, the light would just pass through it. So you actually 
would not be able to see if you were invisible. Well, and he does mention like, it's really hard for me to run upstairs. And I'm like, well, then how are you so agile? If you can't see your feet, how are you doing all these things? So you're saying he can't even see at all if this is real, which it's obviously not. Yeah, he obviously can see in the movie, but uh, there was just somebody saying, um, excuse me, a real invisible person couldn't see. Thank you for making that great point. Um, the movie also does say something like, if you have dirt under your fingernails, they will see the dirt. And I was like, you're sleeping in a barn with hay. You've been all over the place. There's clearly dirt under your fingernails. Why'd you say that if you're never going to bring it back around? Full circle. Yeah. I feel like it's been, maybe not in this Invisible Man movie, but in like many, the many Invisible Man invisible people things that have existed since this they've done some version of like oh he's got some crap on his face there he is you know oh i love that well and this already had enough comedy to really make it shine yeah the moments when he was first discovering kind of the joy of his power and being invisible those moments were all great so for the first time he's like if you village people won't leave me alone let me show you what i can really do and he's like taking off his clothes and his shirt's flying around the room and he's like doing silly antics with all the people there and I think in general just watching things float around a room is silly and fun I know Mary Poppins hadn't been invented yet but we you get some Mary Poppins vibes yeah I do like how he has this plan when he finds out that he's invisible his plan it's not like I'm gonna get rich his plan literally is I will take over the world <laughs> And you go like, how are you going to take over the world? But he's crazy at that point. He thinks, if I kill a few people, derail a train, I can take over the world. And the movie actually does do a good job of making it seem like this guy is a menace. He killed so many people so quickly. And then there's this whole sequence where he, there's like his old partner or assistant or something named Dr. Kemp. And he forces Kemp to help him at one point. And then Kemp betrays him and calls the cops on him. And then he says, Kemp, I'm going to kill you tomorrow night at 10 p.m. And then Kemp is freaking out. And this is like my favorite sequence of the movie when Kemp is so scared that he's going to be killed and he goes to the cops and he's like you have to protect me <laughs> and he's such a coward and the cops are like all right all right but we're going to use you as bait to catch the invisible man and so they work out this whole scheme where like they form like a human oh, so chain funny. and walk down the street so that no one can like get past them and they're taking all these precautions to go like we have to do this because this guy's invisible how are you going to catch him if he can't see see him and then of course the invisible man outsmarts everybody and he does this thing that's great when the cowardly Kemp is like trying to get away he's supposed to be with the police the police do like a fake out isn't it like they pretend he's somewhere but then he's they, sneaking so yeah, they it away take him in in that giant school of fish with the net and I'm like the invisible man could be around your stupid school of fish net and follow you at whatever it's fine it's very clearly a lot of flaws in this plan but yeah they dress him up it's like uh in that bond movie where Javier Bardem dresses like the train person and there's all the train yeah so they have Kemp dress up like a policeman so he can leave with the policeman. And then they don't have the policeman protect him. They're like, okay, you're on your own. Bye. And he gets in his car to leave. 
And then it turns out the Invisible Man is in the car. You go like, he knew the whole time what they were doing. He's he's smarter than all of them. And then he has this great sequence where he's like, drive, Kemp, drive. And then he drives him to a, to a cliff. And then he ties Kemp to the steering wheel. I forget exactly what the line is, but he calls him like a rat and a coward. <laughs> and and then he pushes him off the cliff and Kemp explodes. And Kemp explodes awesome. before his car hits anything. I need to point that out. The car goes off the cliff, immediately sets fire. And you're like, why? Did, why? And then it crashes In anticipation. Yeah. Um, that's uh-huh. actually something they changed from the book. Apparently in the second book, Kemp survives. But they were like, he's clearly such a, a betrayer. I wrote down in the beginning, I don't like this guy. He's macking on this other guy's girl. Yeah. Also, did you notice in his house, there's a giant picture of her on the mantle? Yeah. Like, <laughs> yeah. Such a, yeah. he was clearly a betrayer. I think he did the correct thing in the situation of like calling the scientist and calling the police because that's probably what I would have tried to do. I think my favorite sequence of all of the sequences was when he really, for the very first time, when all the villagers enter his room and he shows them who he is and he pulls off his nose and he starts unraveling himself and that image when they flash really quickly and you see where it's still partially covered but not and the air through it. Ooh, I loved that so much. I kept rewinding it. That's great. Yes, it it should be noted that, again, at the time, these special effects were revolutionary. It's like a rudimentary version of like green screening him out of the frame but no one had ever seen anything like that so it's like they have pants walking around with no one in them and it does have like a fun eerie vibe like there's this fun shot when it's a pair of pants coming down the road and he's like singing a little song as he's like coming down the road so there's a lot of fun stuff, and yes, at the time, people had never seen anything like that, which is really cool that they were like, if this is a movie called The Invisible Man, we're going to go all out with like the invisibleness of him. I read about how they did it. Do you want me to tell you about stuff? I'm sure you already know. Yeah, yeah. So these were the techniques that I read that they used. I wrote down the people's names, too, so let me read them to you. The visual effects were designed by John P. Fulton, John J. Mezcal and Frank D. Williams. And what they did for all of the different things were if something is floating, it was usually floating because of wires. So like the books mm-hmm. that float or the doors that open, like it's all wires. If it was yeah. something that he was wearing or taking off, like dressing and undressing, they put uh, Claude Rains in an entire black velvet suit. So like picture a green motion capture suit except for it's black velvet and they would have him do the things and then mat it. They would use a matting process to put it over the images that were filmed live. And then um, the final thing that they would do was they made a bust of like his face. So when they're taking the, what are they called? The the bandages? The bandages, the, the thank wrapping. you. The wrapping, yeah. that was the word I was like. When they're taking the wrapping off of his face, it was like, uh, imagine like a plaster paper mache kind of thing. That was how they did that. And I think that's so creative and fascinating. I use the word fascinating a lot in this podcast, but it is. That shot is really cool when he's pulling the wrapping off of his head and the wrapping is disappearing and it looks fantastic even to this day. It looks really good. And I love that they do the monster movie thing if they show you little glimpses. You don't see it all at first. I love that, that it's all quick flashes of things before you get the whole picture. Yeah. 
I love the structure of this movie. This movie is not super long, but it kind of to me feels like a little bit of like a Martin Scorsese movie of like yes. you see his his rise to power and then you see his fall at the end and his fall is so perfect but anticlimactic where you go like it doesn't come down to like some hand-to-hand fight with like a hero versus the invisible man or anything like that it's just he is asleep in a barn it's cold out this is a thing that to be the invisible man is very hard i would imagine because it's winter in the story and he has to be naked to be invisible i do love that they mention that if i may say they do bring it up a couple times. Like when he's about to kill Kemp, he's like, I had to wait in this car and it was so cold, but it's worth it. So he does like bring it up a lot. Cause I was wondering when he first takes off all his clothes, I'm like, are they going to talk about the fact that he's naked right now? Are they even going to say that? They do bring it up. They do mention it, but I did cut you off. You were saying that it's cold. Yes, it's, it's cold. So he has to sleep in this barn. He's looking for shelter. He sleeps in a barn and he's under a pile of hay. The farmer comes in, hears him snoring, sees the hay moving and goes like, the invisible man, he's in my barn. And everybody knows they're on the lookout for the invisible man. And then how he gets beat is the the farmer calls the cops. The cops come, they light the barn on fire. The invisible man then goes, oh, oh no. <laughs> and, he, and he comes out of the barn. They see his footprints in the snow and they shoot him. It's like such a pathetic <laughs> end for this character. He gets shot. So it to me feels like, again, like a Martin Scorsese death of like, you see these characters that go on this wild spree and then they're taken down by a seemingly random, unassuming, in an unassuming way. And I, I love that. I love how in this movie, you never see the main actor until the last shot of the film. I just think that that is so cool. What a great like reveal of of the actor that the actor has been the thing that you're there to see the whole time even though you can't see him he gives the most engaging performance in the whole movie because his voice is is so cool and he's such a wild kooky character and then at the end you only see him when he's dead because as he's dying, the invisible serum is wearing off. Also, side note, I love that the doctor somehow knew that was going to happen. The doctor, yeah. who no one has ever heard of this chemical. And they're like, yeah. ah, yes, uh, uh-huh. when he is dying, he will be visible again, just so you all know. And I was like, you, you don't know that doctor. Also, I did want to point out, we talked about the footsteps in the snow, and that's kind of the very simple thing that takes him down. Even though earlier they do all this exposition to tell us all the ways he could die, he talks about how rain will fall on me and you can see it, and you can see me in the fog. They're explaining all these things, so I'm going, oh, that's what's going to take him down later. No, it's the snow. But it's not even real barefoot footprints. People have been pointing out, I guess forever, that it's shoes. His shoe. You the see shoe the shoe prints. prints. <laughs> so I, I think that's great. And you know he's dead because you see where the prints stop and you see when he falls over, there's an imprint in the snow. And I think that's, that's a beautiful way to do it. How cool. I just thought of something. Wouldn't he bleed? Wouldn't we be able to see his blood? See, I, I don't know. I don't know because it it kind of comes into question of you go like what is visible and what is not visible. It's like if he were to bleed, you go like your blood comes out of your body and then your blood is like 
dead, right? Mm-hmm. Like, when, when does your blood go from being alive blood to being dead blood? Ooh, that's a good question. Is it when it, like, dries? Because <laughs> I, I, I don't know. I'm not a doctor. see it in its liquid form. Do you know what I mean? But I don't know if it's when it's exiting like, your body. Like, would you, though? I'm going, like, if he's alive and you go, the the movie tells you as he dies, he becomes visible. And then when he's dying, you know, it's a great shot. It's, a again, another visually astounding shot where he is a skeleton and then the muscles come on and then he, and then the actor reveal. And that's the last With shot of the movie. perfect hair, by the way. The most gorgeously tousled yes. tresses yeah. around his face. Yeah. He was like, I want to look good in this one shot. You better make me look good. So so he looks great. And um, so that tells me, okay, when his tissue is dead, it becomes visible. When it's alive, it has this chemical flowing through it that makes it invisible. So I would imagine that it'd be like, you know, disappearing, reappearing ink from Roger Rabbit or something to where, like, he would bleed. The blood would be invisible at first, and then as it kind of dies and dries, it would become visible. Okay. All right. That would be my thought. So the blood was too fresh, then, to have shown itself. I'm glad we solved this mystery. I, I don't know, though. Maybe. <laughs> well, because, again, the, they just keep trying to answer questions that you as an audience member would have. Because here's the thing, Sarah. If you could see his blood, you could see the blood flowing through his veins. You're right. But then why can you see the food? I, it, all None of that makes sense to because me. Because the food isn't a part of his body yet. It needs to be digested okay. into his body. Okay. But you go, if it's only an hour it's like can't you see like the poop (laughs) (laughs) not to be like gross but can't you see like his feces coiled around and like his intestines and stuff and then wouldn't he have to be just totally empty in order to go around and be invisible you're right we should be able to see all that i want to see the movie with with all that where you just see a like a colon full of poo (laughs) floating around do you want me to tell you so claude rains This was actually his big break on screen. And you had said earlier that, you know, if you were really invisible, you wouldn't be able to see. Claude Rains was 90% blind in one of his eyes. He fought in World War I, and there was like a gas, they said a gas attack, and that just sounded really, I mean, I know that it's a bad thing, but (laughs) gas attack. Um, (laughs) But as a result of that, he he lost um, vision mostly in one of his eyes. I can't remember which one. And he ended up becoming a captain in the war, even though he never went back to combat. Um, so he fights in World War I. His dad was an actor, and I guess they were poor. He was born on the wrong side of the Thames, he said. And he had this accent that was kind of cockney and rough. And he fell in with uh, one of the founding members of RADA, the Royal Academy of Dramatic Art in London, who personally like trained him, coached him to have this like beautiful transatlantic accent that he has. And he ended up teaching at RADA. Two of his students were Laurence Olivier and John Gilgood. They were his students. Isn't that crazy? That's insane. So yes, he's um, a prolific actor. He was a supporting actor who achieved A-list stardom almost in a category by himself. And he tends to play, I feel like he plays a villain a lot, but he's been in so many prolific films. I mean, he's in Casablanca playing like a kind of smarmy, sleazy guy that ends up doing the right thing. He's in Now Voyager. He plays uh, the bad guy in The Adventures of Robin Hood. He's got all these incredible credits. He worked with all these amazing actors. He's an amazing actor himself. And this is the movie. This is his big break. 
And it was his big break because Boris Karloff was supposed to do it. Really? But uh, he was getting into a pay dispute. Carl Lemley, uh, Carl Lemley Jr., I think, produced this. And we in California know the Lemleys because it's like a theater chain. But he produced this movie and Boris Karloff kept being like, I need more pay. You're not paying me enough. And they were like, well, screw you, Boris Karloff. We're going to get this young up-and-coming guy. And it turned yeah. out just fine. He's fantastic in the movie. I think that Boris Karloff is obviously incredible. And he has such an iconic voice. For anyone that's watching that, that like knows Boris Karloff is like Frankenstein. But also remember, Boris Karloff is the Grinch as well from he narrates the Grinch from how the Grinch stole Christmas so he has like this voice that's so good um and it's weird that his like most famous role he doesn't talk yeah isn't that funny thanks for pointing that out we actually talked about Boris Karlov last week because we did Arsenic and Old Lace and he was in the stage play of that show playing a character that was supposed to look like Boris Karlov is the joke everyone keeps saying you look like Boris Karlov and it's Boris Karlov but he's not in the movie (laughs) Nuts. Ah, nuts. Ah, nuts. But Claude Rain's voice, yeah, he has such a cool, kind of gravelly, authoritative sound that doesn't totally match his person because he's kind of a small, a small guy. Yeah, but he does have like this mad energy to him. It's unique just to him. I like it when different people play the monsters. It's it it is fun to see some people repeat. Like Boris Karloff was also the mummy in the classic mummy movie. But I feel like it's fun when you say, okay, Boris Karloff is Frankenstein's monster. Bela Lugosi is Dracula. You know, you get to say that these different people are, are this. So that if they ever, you know, meet each other. What do you know about James Whale, the director? Do you know about him? He's very interesting. So again, for people listening, James Whale, who directed this movie, also directed... Uh, Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein. And then he followed those ones up with this one, right? Yeah, so uh, James Whale came into prominence because he directed a movie called Waterloo Bridge, which was a drama, kind of like a, I think it was about a prostitute, and I feel like it was a World War One kind of tale. And they asked him what he wanted to do for his next project, and he was like, nothing with war. I'm really over war. I think I'm going to pick this horror film. And he ends up doing Frankenstein, and it's a huge hit. So he kind of becomes the go-to horror guy. So he does Frankenstein, uh, The Old Dark House, The Invisible Man, and then Bride of Frankenstein. And eventually he does the 1936 version of Showboat, which is like a really solid film. He retires in 1941 because he has a really huge flop in 37 called The Roadblock, ironic title for um, his career to kind of crumble. And he had a longtime companion and partner and he ended up committing suicide Uh, But his partner didn't want the stigma of that to be known, so he hid the suicide letter for years and years and years and then eventually, like, came out with it. But yeah, the the crumbling of his career kind of really crushed him. Uh, But he was clearly such a talent. I mean, those films are iconic. (laughs) Uh, He he did a great job with horror and a great job of infusing, like, I would say... uh, heart and personality in horror it's not just to scare you it's like a deeper story he has like the heart he also has like a lot of humor in those movies even in the frankenstein movies there's like a lot of humor isn't the woman the innkeeper woman in this movie isn't she also in frankenstein oh, Bride of you know what i think she is you're right i know her so her name's una o'connor she is in one of my favorite movies of all time that i've talked about in this podcast Christmas in Connecticut, super cheesy movie that I love so much. 
And so she is in that. And so the second I see her, I'm like, ah, Christmas in Connecticut. Um, but she's been in so many things. She was in uh, Robin Hood. She basically played like Lady Cluck, if you know that. <laughs> that was her. She played Bess. Um, she is like a prominent character actress. She's in so many things. And James Whale reused a lot of actors. He would use the same people over and over again. So Gloria Stewart, who plays the fiance in this, who everyone at home will know as Old Rose in Titanic. When I saw her name, I went, oh, it can't be. What is it? It's Old Rose. Um, her biggest movies pretty much were the ones she did with him. She was in The Old Dark House and this. This is what kept happening. I kept going like, I'm not going to take any more notes. I take too many notes. But then I would look into this person's life and every single human being involved with this had like a crazy life. And it was fascinating. So her whole story, by the way, IMDb really wants you to know that she was born on a dining room table. That's the first thing on her page. And I went, well, thank you, IMDb. I'm so glad I know that. She was born on a dining room table in 1910. So she's in this film. She does Poor Little Rich Girl, The Gold Diggers of 1935, Nick. Oh. Hey, yo. We were there in you go. that play. Gold Diggers. The Dark House. And then Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. Those are her big movies. She starts doing more stage stuff in the 40s and eventually becomes a prominent artist. She opens like this art furniture store, sells art furniture. She has uh, works that are on permanent display at LACMA. So the Watts Towers are like at LACMA. She did that. She was a bonsai artist, a professional bonsai master. And her bonsais are in the Huntington Garden, <laughs> in the Japanese <laughs> Garden. Like, she was one of the founders of SAG. Holy cow. Yeah, she had all these things going on I didn't even know about because I'm just sitting here going, oh, it's old Rose. Yeah, so wow. she's fascinating too. We've got Clarence up in here. So Henry Travers, the guy that plays the Papa Doctor, he was in It's a Wonderful Life. He played Clarence. He was in Shadow of a Doubt. He played the dad, Mrs. Miniver, Bells of St. Mary's. They're solid. This cast is great. It's funny because Kemp did like nothing. I He did no movies that I had ever Good. heard of. So <laughs> screw you, Kemp. Kemp really is a character. They did a great job of making a character who like is so self-serving and cowardly that you go like, good when he dies you say good <laughs> well in what a cool way they do like the vader chokehold on him kind of and then when you see the scarf pull him out of the car like that's all really cool when i think i told you earlier he survived in the book but then they were like for the movie he can't survive he's such a dick is the fiance character even in the book so not in the hg wells one in the hg wells one apparently again haven't read them just did some internet research that is where this is coming from mm -hmm. The H.G. Wells one does not really get into the backstory of the Invisible Man very much. So he's not incredibly sympathetic, and that's for a reason. And then the 1931 version, that's where he gets the fiancé. That's where there's okay. more of a backstory. And Kemp is a character in that. But you write for the film, almost immediately, we don't trust this guy. And yet he, he has the iconic line that comes through in the end of, he meddled in things men should leave alone. That seems to be like the through line of the piece. And Kemp says it. Yeah, that's also kind of Frankenstein-y as well. That's what all those mad scientists are. They meddle in things they should not. And I like that they differentiate between the mad scientists and the good scientists too. Because they're not like all science is bad. They're like, look, your dad does great things that save people. That's good science. I'm glad that in the that in the movie they kind of switched it so that Kemp was going to die and they brought in the fiancé to be kind of your character that she's the survivor. She's like the one that you're really kind of going like, okay, now she's who I'm emotionally invested surviving. 
and in scene through to the end. And once Kemp is dead, you just see the invisible man's downfall. But it is funny because Kemp really doesn't do like anything really wrong. He does what I might have done in the situation in terms of like, yeah, there's a murderer holding me hostage. Yes, I'm gonna call the police. The reasons that we don't like him are like the normal human reasons of like, he's a rat, he squealed. Because when the police are interrogating the father and the fiance, they're like, don't know what's going on, never met this man, I don't know. And Kemp's immediately like, it was our fellow scientist. And I'm kind of like, well, yeah, he's a murderer. Like, I I don't know, I might have done that. Matt, my brother and I talk about this all the time of like, there's a difference between things that happen in real life. Because in real life, I would say very little would ever justify someone deserving to die there are certain things that yeah you go like okay this person is a horrible monster get rid of them but you go like in story world there are a few like cardinal sins that as soon as you commit it you're dead you're toast you can't be a coward (laughs) if you're a coward especially in a horror movie if you are a coward you're dead um that is one of the cardinal sins it's essentially if there's a main character you can't be interested in the main character's love interest. Like, if that's the case, that's another movie sin that will condemn you to death. But yeah, and he commits both those things. He's a coward, he's self-serving, and he sides with the authority figures over his loved ones. That will get you killed in a movie. When he immediately hits on that guy's girlfriend right after. That's how we know he's scum. He's probably not going to be a great guy. Good riddance. But I love watching the really old 1930s, like late 1920s, early 1930s films, and the... They're not melodramas, but the melodramatic style of acting, especially that the women seem to have to do, always cracks me up. This movie has a lot of good stuff. Yeah, it's got a lot of good stuff with her. And there are a lot of good shots. Like, there's a lot of shots in the beginning where there's a huge pot of flowers in front of everything. (laughs) Do you remember this? In the rich house, there's like this enormous pot of flowers that is in front of a conversation that is happening. Because they're like, we need set dressing. The set's not complete. They're rich. They have flowers. This is like a Halloween episode, right? It sure is. I wanted to ask you about, because I know that you haven't seen certain of the classic yes. Universal monsters. Do you monsters. want me to tell you what I haven't seen so you can know? Yeah, Okay, yeah. so the ones I have seen, I saw the original Phantom of the Opera, and that's not the one that scared me again. The Andrew Lloyd Webber one scares me. So the original <laughs> Phantom of the Opera. Which I don't think even is universal. I don't know. I saw that one. I saw The Mummy. I saw Frankenstein, Bride of Frankenstein. Um, and I'm forgetting one. I know I saw another one. Oh, oh. I mean, I've seen Psycho and The Fly. That's not even universal, but I would say those are all like the old-timey scary movies that I've seen. This is not a category. Yeah. I have My dance card is not filled up on this. <laughs> that That's okay. Out of all the ones that you've seen... Which one is your favorite? I loved Frankenstein, but now that I've seen this, this one's so silly. Oh, this might be my favorite one, Nick. I really, I enjoyed it a lot. I did. Yeah. And it had like a style too. The way he, they dress the Invisible Man and how he could, he kind of looks like a fish man from Creature of the Black Lagoon. He kind of looks like um, the fly a little bit, but he's got style. They they dress him in cool clothes and they put the shades on him. I uh, I enjoyed stupid little things like that. And where do the glasses go? He doesn't have ears. Thank you. I have to get that out. They just kind of stick <laughs> on there. He does have ears, but they're like wrapped up. Nick, what's your favorite, if I may ask? Uh, I'll talk about it. Um, I think it's, it's kind of a toss-up. I like this one a lot, but I also 
really like Bride of Frankenstein because Bride of Frankenstein is uh, it's very similar to the first Frankenstein, but I think it's a little better than the first Frankenstein, which is uh, cool that it's a sequel that's better because it has a few things in it that I like. It has the old man that the monster goes and befriends, and there's all the stuff about the smoke good, and then it also has the bride, and the bride is so cool. You know what's funny? I think I've blended the two in my head because they really are all part of one story. Because those two movies... Essentially, they're both based on the book, Frankenstein, which is why both of those ones are good. And it's written by a woman, Mary Shelley. Hey, girl, thank you for writing that. Yeah, she created the science fiction genre with Frankenstein. She's amazing. Yes, so Bride of Frankenstein is essentially stuff from the book that didn't get into the first movie. So I like all the stuff that's in there. And then there's also a new villain, that's one of the things that they invent for the movie is they invent a new villain named Dr. Pretorius. Do you remember him? Yeah, Dr. Pretorius is the other doctor that's working on trying to make people. He makes tiny little people in jars. I forgot about that. How could I forget about that? And that blew people's minds when they saw it. They were like, look, how'd they get those people into those jars? So I, I like those two. I have not seen all of the classics I haven't seen, I don't think I've ever seen The Wolfman. I haven't either. I want to watch Dracula and I want to watch The Wolfman. Dracula is fun, but Dracula is, it's a little older than the other ones. So it's like got less music in it. You can really tell that like the filmmaking advanced, you know, people were still getting the hang of like, how do you make a movie? It has certain things in it that are fantastic. You go, Bela Lugosi is so good as Dracula. And then also Renfield played Fritz, the assistant in Frankenstein. Do you remember him? I don't remember. He's the hunchback assistant that drops the brain. That's right. Well, because it's not, we all call him Igor, and it's not Igor. It's Fritz. Yeah, it's Fritz. Igor is in the third Frankenstein movie, but it's not even Igor, it's Igor. And it's vaguely, he kind of is Fritz, because in the first movie, Fritz dies because I think Frankenstein hangs him. Um, the monster does, it hangs him. And then in the third Frankenstein movie, Igor, who is played by Bela Lugosi, uh, comes in. And he's like a hunchback assistant guy who talks about how he used to be Frankenstein's assistant. And, like, his neck is broken. And he talks about how, like... He had a broken neck. He's vaguely the same character, but he's got a different name and, and it's a totally different actor. Well, I think it's amazing how little I remember about that. I was clearly super invested at the time. Um, but I really did enjoy this. Thank you for having us watch this one. Because, yeah, I was just going to redo Frankenstein, and this was so much more fun to get to watch something new that fits in this genre that I'm capable of watching at Halloween. I've never seen any of the sequels to this movie. You don't need to. Why would you want to? Return of the Invisible Man or, like, the son of the Invisible Man or, like, the Invisible Woman eventually comes into it. I've never seen any of them. But there are, like, several prominent 
Invisible Man remakes or things that are essentially remakes of Invisible Man. I heard the last one that just came out was actually pretty good. It was actually fantastic. There you go. It was one of the most tense movies I've ever seen. It really does do a very good job of making you say, an invisible man is scary. Does he have dirt in his fingernails at all or food on his face? Do they make any jokes? I don't want to spoil anything for you. Okay. Should I watch it? Can I handle it? You will hate it. Okay. <laughs> okay. Thank you. But, uh, but it's a good movie. Do you want to hear like the basic premise of wh what they did, how they kind of adapted it? It's from the woman's perspective, isn't it? It's like he's haunting her. It is, yes. And it's Elizabeth Moss from Handmaid's Tale. And it's the most amazing setup I've ever seen. You know, the Universal Monsters, they've been trying to bring them back time and time again. Because for those of you that are listening, the Universal Monsters, back in the day, those were the Marvel movies. They were huge. Everybody loved them. These characters were, like, massively popular. And then they all met each other in different movies. This was like the first shared universe where all of the monsters end up fighting each other. Frankenstein meets the Wolfman, House of Frankenstein, all this stuff where they all end up fighting. But they're all kind of different versions all meeting each other. They've recently been trying to reboot all of the universal monsters in something called the dark universe have you heard about this well Sarah? i i remember it was like tom cruise russell crowe like they were trying to build it and it was so bad like i saw the mummy on an airplane <laughs> and hated it more than i can possibly express to you they tried to start it with that mummy remake the mummy was huge in the 90s you know when it, the brendan fraser mummy and that was totally different from the 1920s one like they were completely a completely different idea and series it was like a, a totally different thing but it is a remake it's still about like imhotep but they like switch genre they were like it's going to not really be a horror movie it's going to be an adventure movie it's essentially like indiana jones versus the mummy it was kind of their idea and then the same guy that made that mummy he made that movie van helsing do you remember this oh totally with hugh jackman yeah i yeah i remember that movie i don't know that i saw it but i remember it yeah it you know some people like it <laughs> um i i you know it's what it is but that movie was again he said all right I brought back the mummy. I'm going I want to now do like Dracula and Frankenstein and Wolfman, but I'll again make it like an adventure kind of story. So he instead focuses on Van Helsing and Van Helsing like fights Dracula in the movie and Frankenstein's in the movie. This was kind of an attempt again to bring back the monsters. Van Helsing was not as uh ex as the mummy was. The well, mummy I almost was saw it kind of a big because hit. of Hugh Jackman. So they did write in casting him because I was not going to see it at all. And then I thought, maybe Hugh Jackman's in it, maybe. It, that's okay. Don't worry about it. You're not missing much. But then they tried to reboot the Dark Universe with that Tom Cruise mummy. And the Tom Cruise mummy did not do well. Because it wasn't a good movie. Sorry, everybody. Sorry, everyone, <laughs> if you loved that movie. If you loved it, but also if you made it. Sorry, I'm sure you did the best that you could at the time. If you made it, here's the thing about making a movie. Making a movie is the hardest thing you'll, you could ever try to do. The fact that anything makes sense when it becomes a movie is a miracle. It's like when you see all the moving pieces working in Hollywood and kind of seeing how it all comes together, you go like, any movie is a miracle. 
that it plays from the beginning to the end. If a movie doesn't come together well, it usually is really no one person's fault. It usually is just, the thing just didn't come together well. Everybody's trying their best the whole time, and if all the places don't fall into place, it's like not the end of the world. It's a movie, you know? It's not the biggest deal. But that one didn't work out. And Tom Cruise is doing just fine. So they were like, what are we gonna do? Because they like blew a ton of money on this. I remember the Entertainment Weekly feature of it, where it was like they showed all the people that would play the different characters in this dark universe that you're talking about, and now it's not even a thing. It just dissolved. They got super excited about it. It kind of hit a roadblock with the mummy, but then they did this Invisible Man movie. And the Invisible Man movie actually is essentially the new start of the Dark Universe. It is a fantastic start to a film franchise because they said, all right, forget the whole idea of it trying to be an adventure movie. These aren't superhero movies. These are horror movies. It's going to be scary. They also said, we're not going to try to do any kind of like period piece or anything like that. It's going to be set in modern day because when they made The Invisible Man the first time, it was set in modern day. Yeah, it was. And the book was not modern day. So they're like, we're going to do it in modern day. Like if you go back and watch Dracula, Dracula takes place in modern day when it was made. So they're like, this movie's going to be in modern day. And they were like, okay, we're going to, everybody knows these movies. Everybody loves these movies. We're not going to try and just rehash the movies again. Because if that was the case, there would be no point to them. You're never going to make something with this same plot that's as charming or as fun as the original. So they said, we're going to do something totally different, but it's inspired by The Invisible Man. So... Their new plotline for the movie is they have this woman who's Elizabeth Moss. She lives with her, I think it's her husband. The beginning of the movie is so tense. It's awesome. You see a, this incredibly high-tech, like super swanky house that is on the edge of a cliff. And like it's over all of this water, like splashing up in waves. And you see she is lying in bed with this man and this man has like his arm over her and then she like is laying there awake and then like she looks at the clock and the time has come and she gets out of bed she sneaks out of bed and she's trying to silently get her things and run away he is like an insane control freak who controls what she eats, controls where she goes, controls what she does, all of this stuff, and she desperately wants to get away from him. He's like emotionally, mentally, possibly physically abusive. And he is, I think maybe they just say that he is physically abusive. And so she's like, I gotta get away from this maniac. And the beginning of the movie is she's getting away, he wakes up, He's chasing her. She has to, like, run through the woods. Her sister comes to pick her up, and, like, she gets in the car, and you go, like, oh, she's safe. And then he shows up, and he punches through the window, and he tries to grab her, and they, dri and they have to drive off. And so she gets away from this guy, and then she's in hiding. She's, like, staying with a friend, and she's incredibly paranoid that he's going to find her. 
and she's like this guy he's the super successful rich scientist and he's crazy and he wants me back and he wants to control me and control everything about me and she's staying with her friend who's a police officer and her friend's like he's not gonna find you he's not gonna find you all this stuff her friend has never seen sleeping with the enemy and then what happens is she gets a call from a lawyer who goes like your husband's dead he's dead uh i think they say that he committed suicide or he or something like that but he's dead and he's left you all of his money but in order to claim the money you have to come in and you have to sign these documents and we need to know where to send the money so she comes in and she's like okay and her friend the police officer has a daughter and the daughter wants to go to college but the police officer like can't afford it and all this stuff so she gets the money so that she can send this girl to college. It has to be not selfish. It has to be for an altruistic reason. So she agrees to the money, but when she does it, you go, oh no. Because she has to tell them where she lives. And then after that, she doesn't know it, but the invisible man is there in the house for the rest of the thing. (laughs) Well, because that does beg the question of how do you defeat an invisible man? There seem to be several solutions, but it's difficult. It's incredibly difficult because you can't see him. And what this movie does is it goes like, this invisible man is the deadliest thing you could possibly imagine. It's not like Claude Rains. It's not like Claude Rains. This is not like a mad person going around carrying bikes and stuff. This is like a sadistic, awful, horrible maniac control freak that starts doing things to like ruin her life and isolate her and the movie's all about essentially gaslighting she's like being gaslit the whole movie because she's going like i think he's alive because what he is is he's a this optics scientist who's essentially working on a way to become invisible um but Nick, I don't know if you know this, you can't actually see when you're invisible because of the way that your eye works. I don't know if anyone's ever told you this. Sarah, you just got to see the movie. I don't <laughs> want to spoil anything for you, but they actually explain they explain how he becomes invisible in this movie. It's a little different, but essentially it's a movie where he's trying to ruin her life and isolate her. Like he is like sending emails from her email account to her family to like say, I never want to talk to you again. It's about abuse and it's about like, she's going around saying, don't you understand he's still alive and and he's and he's tormenting me. And everyone's like, no, he's not. That's crazy. You're crazy. So it's a movie that works on many levels. So if they just like continue doing this kind of thing, and I know that this is their intention is to say, all right, this is the new horror. Horror movies are making like a huge comeback in terms of like class as well because you have people like Jordan Peele now making horror movies. Writing them brilliantly, like taking into account new ideas and the way we view things. He's making them like more real but also funny. Like there's moments that you need in them. Also, it, it makes it relevant because the abuse stuff, like we are dealing with this as a country. We are dealing with how we treat women. We are dealing with gaslighting. We're getting towards the end. I want to know if there's anything we haven't touched on that you want to talk about 
So again, like we're having all these theories about why can't you do this? Why can't you do that? I loved the device of having like townspeople call in and say like, this is how you should defeat the invisible man. That was really fun and cool because it's what we're all thinking at home. Like, well, why don't you try this? Why don't you try that? And having them refute certain things or say, we're going to try this or we haven't done that. Because to me, it seemed like when he's pinching the officer's nose, I'm like, well, why didn't you just punch the air in front of you where he clearly was? You certainly have to suspend your disbelief for any of these movies. But I think that the movie does a pretty good job of building this character. And even though people might not do obvious things, it all kind of works in with this character is wily and he runs around and he sneaks around and he jumps on tables and he's like such an active weirdo it all just kind of adds to the mystique of it and the movie has a sense of humor about itself so it's like any of these things of like well why don't they just do this the movie does a good job of addressing it not only in terms of like having a little bit of gags about it but the movie also just has an air of fun about it you forgive all of those things you go like i actually don't care because you're having so much fun again while you're watching the movie i love that when he becomes the invisible man we're told in the beginning he doesn't trust kemp he hides his experience from kemp the second he becomes a madman he's immediately like hey you're in on this with me right here are all my secrets we've got this and so he feels totally betrayed later and i'm like what did his behavior ever do to justify your trust and i love that it just took him becoming mad to be like, ah, this person sucks. They'll be mad with me. Yeah, he never liked Kemp. And he's going like, sit down, Kemp. I'm going to now control your entire life. Now your entire life is just about helping me take over the world. I do want to say a couple more things really quick. The one thing that I thought was funny was when Kemp, he first breaks into Kemp's house and there's like the gust of wind. I was actually thinking about what a great night that looked like. He had his fire going. It was snowy and cozy. He had music playing and he was reading. I was like, that's the life. So I clocked that and I just wanted to share that with you. Um, I also want to tell you about how I love, well, I love in Don't Love, how it's not really an origin story. We skip over the origin story part. We jump in right in the middle. And I think that was a really cool device. But then there were times when I wish that there was an exposition. So like, I wish we could have seen the scenes where he was realizing rain would show up on him or that he could, because I was thinking, how do you know that? When did you have time to conduct these experiments? You didn't. So how do you know this? Right. It's a little bit limited in terms of uh, what they could do, because it's like, how would, how would they how show would they... it? Back, back then have made the rain thing. I don't know. They figured um, out all the other stuff. They did. And Oh, and the pants. I wanted to say that it uh, reminded me of the Dr. Seuss book because there's the Dr. Seuss book about like what was I afraid of and it's the boy that runs away from the pants with no owner and then the pants are afraid of him too and so that was what I was thinking of when I saw the pants and a great device of the woman screaming and running away. She's afraid but then the pants are skipping and singing. What a great juxtaposition. It's a great fun old movie. It's a great fun old movie. Again, cheesy at times and very like when the woman she's doing her 1930s acting of like oh this is terrible oh my goodness like that kind of stuff i love that but it's also you know that's what makes it not scary for me because it kind of pulls you out it's like a perfect movie for halloween the the old monster movies are great halloween movies they're great for if you have like kids they're not too scary they're they're just 
scary enough and you know there's a reason why they've standed the test of time it's been almost a hundred years and they're still around i'm so glad you said that though because i should mention yes while you like can't show them to your kids they're not that scary they also like don't have any people of color there is no diversity or representation people are going to be two-dimensional in general like it's not going to be yes up to they today's are standards of things a relic they are a relic past. But they are fun. The spooky and comedy is there. Um, we watched Arsenic and Old Lace, and it was the same kind of thing where, like, it's a great combination of spooky and scary. Not everything in it holds up necessarily with our times, but it's still enjoyable to watch. So, double feature, you basically said it. The double feature I had planned for this, if you want to watch this movie, any of the Universal ones. So, the ones I've seen have been Frankenstein and Bride of Frankenstein, but I bet if you pair this with any of those early James Whale Universal pictures, you're going to be a pretty happy camper. And I think if you can stomach it, I would also suggest watching this movie and then watching the new remake. You make it sound great. Like, it might be really scary, but it sounds good. And I guess if I could handle Sleeping with the Enemy, which sounds like this new Invisible Man is really just a remake of that with scariness. Yeah, I've never seen it. You can watch this on Peacock. I guess Peacock is streaming all of the old Universal films for free with commercials. Oh, the weather. I really loved the weather. It felt so cozy. I love a good snowy film and a good snowy village film. And this had all the components of like, ooh, there's snow and cozy fires and there's a village and things are silly and the snow solves the crime. So I enjoyed that. I, I enjoy getting to watch like actors' whole performances and not them like totally chopped apart and edited you know i do enjoy good editing but i also enjoy when it's all more harmonious you yeah know? well and i think it is something i love about classic movies in general is that you're watching you are watching a relic of the past these people really yes. lived and breathed and existed and on this day in 1933 they put this scene on film you're literally watching history so while we don't always agree with history and what's happened in history and while history can suck, um, it's, it's very cool to have this thing that lives on from the past. And you see like how styles were different, not just in clothes, but in the way people speak and the way people perform, all of those things. I just love that. I don't know that they, we talked enough about the nakedness because that was really a thing for me where I was just like, I would hate being naked all the time. I would hate that. I would be cold. I once did go to a naked thing. I went to my friend's naked play and you had to be naked in the audience watching it. <laughs> it's really you, you have to bring a towel and you're cold. Like you get really cold. Wow. Yeah, I, I just it turns out I like wearing clothes. At the Korean spa, it's fun to be naked. But in right. general, in my everyday life, when I sit on my couch, I would like something in between me and my couch. Yeah, this is a, a very interesting thing because certainly like from the viewpoint of someone who's visible, we hate being naked. I go like, no, absolutely not. I never want to be naked. But um, for someone who's invisible, I don't know how that would mess with your brain. There's no element of shame or anything like that. A few things bug me about the Invisible Man being naked. Uh -huh. One thing is I just empathetically feel cold even just thinking about it. I go like, <laughs> this man is naked. He's running around in the snow. And again, the whole thing kind of takes place in winter. It ends up being like important for the plot that it's in the snow. Uh, but you go like, how terrible is that? That he's always 
freezing to death. Well, no support. I imagine for women, I mean, like we can go without bras, but every now and then you need the support. So I imagine for a man, you need the support sometimes, right? It gets painful. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. And then the other thing that bugs me about it is um, your body secretes fluids. Even if even if you're cold, like you still will sometimes get like clammy or you'll <laughs> have sweat coming off of you. And you go like, how often does this invisible man bathe? Um, he's never shown bathing in the movie. Nope. So you go like, what kind of stink is he leaving everywhere? Because he's like, this is direct skin on furniture contact. That's all I could think. When we saw, you know how they show the chair and they show him sitting in it and it goes down? I was like, his balls are on that right now. That's just, that's gross. Like, it was really funny to see how it went plop and just fell down. But yeah, the, I was like, that's, your your balls are on the silk. That's gross. They certainly Ew. aren't. Because usually we have, you know, layers of fabric between. And you go like, okay, we're, we're not like smearing things on the furniture. But this guy is like smearing stuff oh. everywhere he goes. He still wore his pajamas to bed though, which I thought was so funny. I was like, you're so comfortably naked all over the house, but I really need these pajamas. I'm not, I mean, I don't personally sleep naked. I love pajamas, but that again, I do like the feeling of the clothes touching me though. Maybe people just don't like the feeling of their clothes touching them. You know, different strokes for different folks. And when they're talking about how I feel like you do have to be a nudist to want to be the invisible man because like you'd be so vulnerable all the time and like I remember people talking about like I love to cook naked and I'm like I'd be terrified to cook naked something would splatter and burn Burning. me and hurt me yeah so uh -huh. just like running around the world naked where there's like pitchforks in that barn mm -hmm. and like that's what I was worried about with the pitchforks I was like is he gonna fork him yeah. Oh my God. In order to become quote unquote invulnerable, no one can see you, all of this stuff. You have to become the most vulnerable. You can't have any kind of protection on you. Nick, that was brilliant. That was brilliant. Thank you. <laughs> Whoa. Um, our last thing before we go, I did want to ask you if you were invisible, what would be the thing you'd want to do? Because for me, when he was saying all the things he wanted to do, I was like, that, those things are stupid and they suck. I don't really want to be invisible. There's like a classic question. I don't remember exactly what the context is, but the question is, if you had any superpower, would you pick to fly or be invisible? Fly, obviously. And it says something about your personality. It's like a personality test. And there's like a difference between people who choose flight and people who choose invisibility. The people who choose flight are like, oh, I want to be free or something It'd like that. It'd be fun and free. But then you go like the people who are invisible, it says something about feeling socially awkward. It's like wanting for people to not see you, wanting to be able to go through the world, you know, without dealing with consequences. I would not want to be invisible either. If I could choose between flight and invisibility, I would choose to fly as well. It sounds well. way better. <laughs> it sounds way better. But there are certain times when I would like to be invisible where if I'm like in a room full of people, I don't know if you do this, but I'm also like socially awkward and, and I'm afraid of people. So whenever I'm in a room, I will gravitate towards going into a corner. Like I'll try to become as small as possible to like say, I don't want people to see me. So I would like, in some ways I would like to be invisible. This says a lot about our society because the things that I was thinking of, it would be about men to like be able 
to just walk in nature and not have to smile at all the people passing me, which the masks have helped a lot with, by the way. But I was like, I would like go on a hike and appreciate nature and not have to deal with people. And I think in general, I would do it to just like not have to smile or feel like I'm forced to smile at men. I would use it to keep away from sexist, toxic (laughs) social things. That's a good answer. I would like take walks at night. I would do the things that as a woman I'm quote unquote not allowed to do because I would be raped or murdered. I I would do it for that. Um, But I would not rape or murder people. That would not be my first thought process like this dude. Because he went from zero to rape and murder. Those were the first words out of his mouth. And he got very power hungry. And so that was his downfall. So I think the moral is like, if you have power, don't be power hungry. It's not becoming. Don't abuse your power. Don't abuse your power. Yeah, and there are some things that you're not meant to meddle with. It's like you see a lot of invisible stories where immediately the man becomes invisible and says, oh, I can peep on ladies. This is like something that happens. It's so common. It happens all the time. Or like a guy becomes a ghost. He goes, oh, I can peep on ladies now. And um, you just go, that's really gross. Gross. And also, do you know what I'm doing in my apartment? I'm watching TV. I'm laying around in my pajamas with no makeup on. Like, that's what you're going to see. There's no, like, sexy thing happening behind the curtain. We're people the same way you are. But, you know, there are, like, voyeuristic people that, like, they enjoy that, you know? They enjoy, like, they're, like, peeping time. It doesn't matter what they see. The fact that they are seeing you in an intimate personal setting is the thrill. It would be like the thrill of going like, there's somebody who doesn't know that I'm here. You know, because you go, if I was invisible, I would want to not talk to people. But you'd say, really, the main thing is just you want to overhear people talking about you. Mm -mm, I don't want to hear that. People are just going to say shit about me. I don't want to know. But who knows? What if somebody says something really nice about you? I don't know. I think what happens is to your face, people say nice shit and because they need to vent. And so I think that when you leave, they vent about you. And I, I just don't want to, I don't want to know. Who knows, Sarah? Maybe you're just a pessimist. Maybe. Oh, I also wrote down, so Kemp calls Papa Doctor. And Papa Doctor's like, don't tell anybody. You've really got to keep this to yourself. Hangs up the phone and then immediately goes, daughter, guess what? Listen to this. And I was like, you fool. Jack is alive and he's invisible. And I just loved all of the bumbling constables. There were constables for days. There were so many extras dressed as constables all over the place. They had no shortage Sounds of constables. Like an invisible man, you say? Yeah, that's, that's what most of the movie is. At the end, they want to catch the invisible man and he's sleeping in the barn, and they're like yelling their plans so loudly to each other. And I'm like, you fucking morons. This hinges on him being asleep. Keep your voices down. God. Like, it doesn't feel like a well-executed plan. Nope. The lo-fi solutions killed me of like, we're gonna spray him if we see dust fall down. And of course, they spray a cat because that's how this has to go. Um, But I loved all those. And then I did want to mention this too. Just the white privilege exists, and you know it exists because this invisible man has murdered willfully so many people but at the very end of the movie the doctor's like yes you may see him now this poor soul and i'm like come on come on he he's not like behind bars or anything not behind bars not treated like a criminal like come on and see your family he's in a nice hospital in some nice pajamas they tousle his hair for him that's how you know it's a good place Anyway, so I was like, white privilege is real. You can see it in this film. Absolutely. Also, I want to say, you don't necessarily need to watch these movies to listen to the podcast. Because my mom has been enjoying just the podcast without the movies. And I feel like that's a solid thing, too. 
The movie's only 71 minutes. That should be its tagline. Oh, the tagline actually was, catch me if you can, which I think is funny. It does aptly describe the movie. A lot of the movie is, we gotta catch him. Um, all right, Nick, thank you so much for being here. Thank you. Um, this has been another episode of Talk Classic to Me. 